Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Published or Not has been around for years, but now Jan Goldsmith is joined by... David McLean. We will chat about words and writing, authors and audiences, publishers and printing, a voice for them all on 3CR. Published or not, every Thursday, 11.30 till noon. When you get home, baby, write me a few of your lines. Welcome to Published or Not, this Thursday, the 7th of September. I'm Ewan Mitchell, the one with a croaky voice, and David McLean will be joining me shortly. I'm about to interview Rose Michael over her new novel, her second novel, The Art of Navigation. But before I start, I'm going to give a plug to the Historical Novel Society of Australasia's 2017 conference here in Melbourne, starting tomorrow, Friday the 8th of September. That's in the evening. That's the welcoming address, etc. The bulk of the speakers, there are over 60 speakers, and they will be this Saturday and Sunday, so the 9th and 10th of September. Now, the primary focus is historical fiction, and we've got speakers such as Kerry Greenwood, Kate Forsyth, Lucy Trelaw, Arnold Zabel, Kate Mildenhall, and Libby Haythorn. So it's a fantastic range of speakers. And if you want more details on the conference, if you'd like to visit the Historical Novel Society of Australasia's website, so that is www.hnsa, so Hotel November Sierra Alpha, hnsa.org, not com, .org. So hnsa.org.au First up this morning, Rose Michael, as I mentioned. I'll just welcome David McLean's just joined us. Just joined it. My author has missed the boat, I'm afraid. We've uh, There's been a mix-up at the publishing house. So well, we may have to extend this interview. Well, this might be the chance too. I've still got Daniel Finlay's interview there you go. coming up. But first of all, though, Rose, welcome to 3CR's Published or Not. Thank you very much, Ewan. Okay, so your first novel was The Asking Game that was published by Transit uh, Publishing. And it was that 2007? It was. Yeah. So it's taking you, can I say, <laughs> seven or eight years to get the next book out, The Art of Navigation. It's yes, been it's well worth the wait. Blood from a stone, Ewan. Blood from <laughs> a stone. <laughs> uh, well worth the wait. Well worth the wait. It is beautifully crafted. The uh, Every line uh, through it, you can see just how intense the wordsmithing is. And all the way through, I read it over the last week, and although it's written over that seven or eight year period, it it just works seamlessly all the way through. But when I say all the way through, this is quite a bit to discuss. This is speculative fiction, and it's set across five centuries. Do you want to introduce us to your protagonist, Nat? Oh, how can I introduce you to Nat? I guess um, she's a teenager in 1987, and that was the starting point for me, imagining back being 16 or 17 in 1987, which I was. I met Poison. I was into Bon Jovi. That was really the starting point of the series. Well, you met Poison. Sorry, I just got to think about <laughs> it. Concert, that is something to talk about. So it starts out in that, that Bon Jovi era, and it's got that really uh, fantastic feeling of immediacy. But at a party and an experiment with a Ouija board, what happens? Well, I guess that is um, that is the question. And what I was, I had the idea of an event. Um, the point is that these three girls 
decide to conduct a seance. They're going to call the Australian bushranger Ned Kelly. It's very romantic. It's uh, a very sort of tongue-in-cheek experiment. They kind of don't think it's going to work. They're kind of going to give it a go anyway. And then really the question that I was exploring through the book is what does happen and the difference between what one girl might think has happened, what the other girls might think has happened, what might different interpretations might bring to the event through the prism of different genres, through the idea of, you know, a gothic literary interpretation or a speculative fiction interpretation, Um, the idea, I guess, of how reality is created and conceived by different people um, in different eras. And that was that was kind of the starting point. So I guess in a nutshell, um, possession versus psychotic break. Okay. All right. Can both kind of, you know, can there be contradictory truths that are both true at the same time? And, you know, is, is fiction a means to explore this through different genres, different kind of views of the world? So some big themes in there. Now, so starting at 1987, we have Nat and Di and Lizzie and they're, uh, they're having a, a Ouija board seance and they get caught up with some people from a party next door. They're on the edge of Sherbrooke Forest at uh, Belgrave Way. And there's a connection made across four centuries. To whom do they connect? Well, um, and this was the starting point for the book for me, the realisation that our Ned Kelly is the same name as a character from Elizabethan history, Edward Kelly. So I was very into Elizabeth I. I was into Elizabeth I as a teenager. I thought she was a fascinating character. Um, I was from the UK originally, so I had some kind of interest in Elizabethan history and sorry, in English history. Um, and I was particularly interested in Dr D. So when I was in the UK, in when I was about 19 or so, I think I saw an exhibition that had some of Dr. T- D's strange artefacts. So he was a an alchemist, an astrologer um, for the court of Elizabeth I. He, um, you know, did the horoscope for her coronation. He was potentially, I think, her tutor when she was younger. And, and the more I kind of looked into him, the more he was like a, I guess, like a first quantum physicist, like a real kind of renaissance man. And towards the end of his life, he became interested in the spiritual world. He couldn't get the answers that he sought through sort of maths and science and in that era magic and science they were very similar they were very hard to clearly separate um the idea of alchemy seemed incredibly plausible seemed as plausible as anything else and anyway so towards the end of his life um he had a visitor late one night edward kelly and it was really the name for me there was this resonance of how weird Ed Kelly, Ned Kelly. Let's make something of that. Imagine if you did something silly, you had a seance, you brought all your kind of um, girl power to bear and and didn't know what would actually happen, that someone might be listening on the other side. And Edward Kelly, uh, Dr D, used him to scry, to look into a crystal ball. I thought, imagine if he was looking into a crystal ball where a world away in time and space, three girls were conducting a seance. Imagine if he was looking to see virgin angels and they were calling up. So with Kelly looking into this crystal ball, which he did shows throughout Europe with, Mm. uh, and he picks up on these girls from 1987 who are doing it as a bit of a joke... But, but wasn't he doing it as a bit of a joke too? Well, good point, yeah. Aren't both of them on the cusp of this is either very serious or completely tongue-in-cheek, and it's both. And Ed, uh, Ed Kelly, Ned, uh, Ned Kelly, knew it was a bit of a joke, but his audiences, including uh, Rudolf in Croatia, um, 
they don't tell them it wasn't serious because they took his uh, prophecies very seriously, didn't they? On the one hand, and yet, and it's hard because whatever research you do, whatever um, historical research you do, you bring a contemporary interpretation to bear. Yeah. So it's very hard to imagine people really believing. But at the same time, when you look at the evidence, it doesn't look like everybody really believes. It looks like people treat it a little bit like some people treat string theory or climate change. Yes, all the evidence does seem to suggest, and yet, I mean, I don't know, atoms, isn't it? Aren't we all kind of going on faith that that's real because other things rely on that interpretation and yet there's not actually a lot of proof? So I think that they had the same kind of view. It was at the same time think it's where there's the secularisation of states. So, you know, people are debating how many angels are on the head of the pin or whether maybe God didn't appoint the king. Um, And so people are acting as though these things could be true. What if they are true? But at the same time, I think that the shows are are driven out of a growing scepticism as well. Show me then. Show me the angels then. How is it only you can see them? Because it is the time of the Renaissance and the Reformation uh, coming up in 15... Well, it's already in motion by 1587. So there would have been that scepticism, I agree. However, against that trend, you've got Dr John Dee, who has come up with or he's tapped into the Enochian Enochian language from the patriarch Enoch in the Bible. Could you explain us how he (laughs) decided or he thought he had the language of angels? Um, Okay, so I thought I would preface this by saying I'm no expert. Okay. (laughs) So everything that I've included in the history is true as far as I could find out, but I'm a fiction writer. I'm using it for inspiration. I'm using it as a lens to look at these bigger issues around, you know, identity and the construction of reality, those kinds of aspects. Also, one of the narrative strands in the book really is that once Nat thinks this thing has happened to her, she becomes an expert in this area of research. But if this thing didn't happen to her, but her thinking about it makes her an expert in the area... then she becomes more of an expert. It determines her life and she thinks it's prompted by what happens to her, but it's by her thinking about what happens to her. Mm. And so one of the things I was looking at myself as a researcher is I don't don't want to go too deeply into this. I'll be Alistair Crawley. (laughs) (laughs) So there's a sort of a sense of doing the research and, you know, I was emailing the Royal College of Physicians where Dr. D's library ended up in the UK and um, I went went to Prague when I was younger, you know, and sort of went up the tower, you know, you know, doing that kind of research, but at the same time knowing that it's not going to be good for my brain to spend too many nights looking at something like the Enochian language. So the idea, I guess, is, and this is this is a great example where it kind of shows you the tensions that drew me to the character of Edward Kelly, where I think it is absolutely impossible to determine whether he is a faker or the real thing. Yeah. And I think he doesn't know. And I think that he had times in Dr. D's diary, he has times where he totally confesses. He's like, you fool, I am making this stuff up. And D goes, yes, yes, of course. Anybody who sees the truth is going to be pretty mentally unstable. They're fasting all day. They're doing ritualistic prayers. They're working. D allocates four hours for sleep and eating outside of their research. Edward Kelly is a not very educated man trying to pass as a wealthier person, not having the experience of that kind of 
dubious lifestyle, desperately wanting to drink got, wine he's and got a bit of a dodgy romp with the ladies. Too, exactly. Yeah. He's cut off his calluses to pass for a more educated man than he is. Anyway, so the fact is that he sees these angels in the crystal ball, but they don't say to him, you got to do this, you got to do that. There's no direct communication. He doesn't just say what they say to him so that Dee can record it. He talks about a grid. He, they create these incredibly complex tables of letters. So if you imagine like a, I don't know, a word find, and he goes 4-7-13-2 and transcribes the letters in this way. And so there's a lot of speculation that a character of, uh, of Edward's background wouldn't have been able to hold this Alzheimer's test in his head yeah. for long enough to translate it. So Dee's sitting there scribbling away, decoding, recording all of the message. And then even once he records it, it's not English. It's another language. It's the Enochian language. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of people who are sceptical about that, saying that, um, you know, Kelly concealed how much education he might have had. One time the angels spoke through him and he spoke in Greek or something, which they say that he didn't He didn't mm. speak. Um, and yet at the same time, presumably, one could conceal um, those kinds of currencies. Um, yeah, so, so this is the bit where you go, could he have invented this language that Dee barely understands? Could the angels be real? Would they talk to us in this kind of language? And, and uh, at... At some stages in their relationship, as I have in the book, Kelly is like, it doesn't have to be this hard. Yeah. Why would it be like this? Yeah. Why can't they just speak to us directly? Um, but all of this debuys, like this, this seems to him to be a fitting way in which um, someone would come and, and speak to you in the voice of angels. And the uh, same language that apparently uh, Adam used in the Garden of Eden. That's uh, in looking at that. But That's right. Bringing it back to 1987. Um, the, we've got Di and Nat and Lizzie. There are very much some uh, peer group issues that are, emerge as well. Could you tell us about them? Um, it's an interesting thing, actually, as a writer. When I was writing the first draft, the three girls were quite similar. And, in fact, the short story that, that sort of prompted the novel, which um, was published in the Review of Australian Fiction last year, I, I knew that three girls went into a forest and one wasn't going to return. Right. And that was really the starting point, this idea. And I actually wanted the two that returned to not realise they'd lost their third member. Okay. But as I wrote it, I didn't know which one it was going to happen to. Yeah. So I I had a lot of scenes where I was playing with the character dynamics and they very slowly kind of congealed and coalesced in a particular way. So the third-person point of view was originally from Nat's point of view, you know, looking at the other girls, and I actually thought that it was going to happen to Lizzie who's clearly a, 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 a mirror of, of and a mirror of Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. So there seemed to be a natural connection there. But as I got closer and closer into Nat's point of view, I was like, oh, no, she's the fucked up one. <laughs> she's, she's the one who's afraid of what power they actually have, and it's her fear that's going to make it possible, whereas the others are, are playing in a more removed kind of way. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's great the way it emerges there at the start and it comes home there. Now, we might move on to David Finlay in a second because he's a, a, an author I interviewed not so long ago, but Rose Michael's book is The Art of Navigation, published by University of Western Australian Press, and it was just released this month or last month? Uh, yeah, August. August, okay, great. 
So thank you very much, Rose, for joining us this morning on 3CR's My Publisher. My pleasure. And I'm just going to switch now through to Daniel Findlay and the chat we had a couple of months ago about his book, The Year of the Orphan. Fantastic Orphan, book. Fantastic book. Oh, this is great. Published by Penguin Random House. Here's Daniel Findlay. My guest this morning is a professional editor who originally trained as an historian, but has now authored his debut novel titled Year of the Orphan, published by none other than Penguin Random House. Welcome to 3CR's Published or Not, Daniel Findlay. Thank you very much for having me. Congratulations on The Year of the Orphan. It is a masterful novel. Perhaps you'd like to start by telling our listeners when and where your story is set. This story is set in Australia in a post-apocalyptic future, a couple of hundred years in the future. Um, I've left that deliberately vague so the reader can sort of lean in there and make it up. Um, And it's set out in South Australia around a place called Maralinga um, out in the desert. Okay, well, actually, I'm, I was going to ask you this later, but since you brought up Maralinga to begin with, part of the uh, research credits at the back of the book, you've mentioned your field trip to Maralinga. Now, most people are familiar with the name, but not exactly familiar with what is there. What did you find out there, and how did it influence your writing? Maralinga is one of the most eerie places I've ever been to. It's uh, an old army base where nuclear weapons were tested in the 1950s in Australia. It's just South Australia, so a few days few days drive from where we are right now and it is haunting it's a scoured landscape where they've tried to scrub all trace of this old army base from from the earth and then in several locations there's the ground zero of, of nuclear bomb explosions right and how much is still left there Quite a bit of the old army base is still intact. There's a, an old uh, barracks and there's a water tower and there's a huge airfield out there, which um, makes an appearance in the book. It's one of the few strips in the Southern Hemisphere where you can land the space shuttle. It's abs- oh. absolutely enormous. Um, and out sort of on the range, there are markers that were left behind to sort of denote where the bombs went off. And then the old cables, old watchtowers and sort of scraps, almost as if it, it is post-apocalyptic out there. Okay. Now, just with the space shuttle, so in, to some degree, it's actually still functioning. It could be used if that strip is there for... Well, no, no, the space shuttle's finished for the moment, but as a backup, I didn't even realise they would consider that. But uh, there it is. Have they ever used it for the space shuttle? I don't think it's ever been used. Yeah. There's a fantastic um, caretaker out there called Robin Matthews who yeah. takes you around. When you visit Maralinga, yeah. he sort of gives you the story, amazing storyteller, and he told us that the Army regularly still lands planes out there and they have to phone ahead and let him know so not driving his ute around on the tarmac. Um, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating place. Okay, so when you were out there, did you spend time meditating on the landscape? In the book, The Year of the Orphan, the uh, descriptions of the outback landscape are so evocative and powerful. How did you go about putting that together? While I was out there, I kept an audio log. So right. we, uh, my friend and I drove from Seduna, which is a small town on the South Australian coast, about 400 k's inland. So I kept an audio diary um, all the way through. So recording bits and pieces that I saw, scraps of copper, bits of concrete, the wildlife, the smell. We nearly ran over a wedge-tailed eagle. We, it, we missed it by a margin, but they were just taking notes on the, the wildlife that was out there. So that all kind of came back with me. The interesting thing, I guess, is that I'd written a lot of the story before I went out there, and it was eerie to see things that I'd completely made up sort of appear, like right. the building materials, corrugated iron and old fuel drums and sort of things that were already written then were part of it, so that was a bit spooky. 
Well, that explains how it was so evocative. You went out there. I mean, you guessed it, and then I'm, I'm sure you rewrote and put extra details in there because you really helped the reader become immersed in that landscape. But part of that is the voice. Now, Isabel Carmody, on the cover of The Year of the Orphan, has described your storytelling style as intense and visceral, and I think she's really nailed it there. It is such a unique voice. Would you mind reading a short excerpt from somewhere near the beginning with the orphan's voice herself? Yeah, absolutely. So this this passage is from the very opening, and it's um, in the orphan's voice as she kind of sprints towards the settlement, um, unsure of her own safety. So uh, he might not take her if she made the walls. Some protection for what it was worth, spilling from the trash and noise and firelight of other souls. Then again, there was rumours he were one of them that he walked among them in the circles of the system without care before fading through the iron and disappearing into the red dust that clogged your lungs and made you spit up blood and weep forever you breathed it long enough. He was something out of dust, out of whirlies and willy-willies, and sometimes she thought he were making him all up. He was a boogeyman, taking kids and old alike, eating up scavs that crossed him out paint away, or Olympic way, or any which way the tale got spun. They were stupid stories to keep the brainless shook and young and scared. She'd never believed him, but when she tried to focus the scope on him and couldn't, she knew what it was. Never seen nothing like it in all her years on the sand. The air had been cold and clear the last few nights, and she'd she'd no need of her wrap, shipless as she were. Still, she'd slept with it stuffed in her mouth in case she cried out, though she reckoned she'd beat that habit a long time. All them stories, but it didn't change there were a fella tracking her, and she didn't like being hunted. Didn't sit right at all. There weren't nothing certain but one thing. The reckoner were coming. The Reckoner, that is great. Now, in reading that, what the listener may not fully appreciate is that many of the spellings are phonetic. There's minimal punctuation. The dialogue is in italics. Uh, But there is this incredible sense of uh, being inside the narrator's head as you go through. How difficult was that to achieve? It actually flowed quite naturally after about sort of 10 pages. I was looking back at an early draft last week and the start of it was quite clean compared to what's actually made it into the book. So the trick in editing was as the as I kept writing, the voice got stronger and stronger. Right. So then I had to go back and make the start consistent. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now, were you influenced by, I mean, some other notable authors with uh, in, uh, incredibly original voices like Anthony Burgess and Clockwork Orange or Irvin Welsh, Welsh and Train Spotting? Were you influenced by writers like that? Yes, absolutely. I'm a big fan of train spotting. Um, Reading that in phonetic Scottish in your head, having to read parts of it out loud, was an amazing exercise. And books like that showed me how much a voice could help place a story. You can write about the dust and you can write about the heat all you like, but to hear the voice of the protagonist just places this story firmly in Australia. Okay, now I'm getting a sense you might have a bit of a musical background. Uh, I, I have a musical journalism background. Oh, okay, but you, yeah. do you have an ear for music? No, I played a very bad euphonium in primary school. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell me the flight of the bumblebee on the euphonium. <laughs> Probably. Probably. Woody Allen. Yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, let's have a, another example. This is a, an excerpt later on. Do you want to tell us the background of this? And This is another type of voice from another character because you've really written this in multiple third-person point of view. Would you describe it that way? Yes, yeah. yes, definitely. So who are we li- uh, listening to now? We're hearing from a different character, an older, wiser, sort of mentor-style character mm. who's uh, talking to the orphan about the landscape and the land that they find themselves in. Great. Look around, orphan. You know about spirals, don't you? Them big holes out there. And the country where they are, them, all, them around here call the glows. Real flat country. No proper hills, but there's something else missing out here too. You know what it is? Me forgetting you lived out here a while, didn't you? 
Birds is missing and the scrub. Don't know if you can tell, but it ain't quite right. I've been places where the stands of trees are so thick you can't see the sky. Up north, it's a whole different country. It's been scorched and you may as well cut your own throat as drink the water, but there's trees up there that have figured a way to thrive and they're growing. Monsters up that way too, dragons and such. But where was we? Birds. Yeah, I know you see them from time to time, but for a place with so much water, there ought to be more around the system. I reckon it's because they can feel something bad happened out here. The birds is a sign orphan, and if you stop seeing them all together, you know you're getting close. Close to what? Don't rush me, youngin. All in good time. Oh, that sinister sense of foreboding. That's great. Now, the story does switch also in tenses between the present and past scenes. For the reader, I found it flowed seamlessly. How difficult was that flow to achieve, though, as a writer? It was pretty tricky. There were. It was. I never kept a, a, a written down timeline. It was just in my head, so I did feel a little bit mad at times and <laughs> had to really think about the order of things and obviously make sure there weren't too many before bits yeah. butting up against each other and then the, the present bits push the narrative along and this is as stripped back as I could as I could make it. I really tried to make it as lean and every scene pushes the story forward in some way. It does. You, you've really illuminated the present action with something that's happened in the past, then switch back in so the reader gets the full consequences of what's going on. Now, uh, the, uh, also in the credits towards the back, you mentioned thanks to Jimmy Murray for meeting at the Vic, otherwise this book might never have happened. <laughs> now, why was that such a pivotal meeting? Uh, my, <laughs> this is a funny story. This going to the pub on a Saturday afternoon for a couple of beers can absolutely lead to a published novel. So, <laughs> so Jimmy is the partner of my editor Lex. Okay, and I went to the pub to meet Jimmy and my brother. And my brother was and his friend were having some relationship issues, so they were kind of down in the dumps at the time. And we were trying to cheer them up by just horsing around and they just would not be cheered up so so jimmy and i just eventually sequestered ourselves and just started having a yarn about what we were up to and it came out that i was i had worked on this book i had a manuscript and um his partner was looking for submissions so it was a a match made in heaven and so i sent i sent it through to jimmy and a few months later i got a call from my publisher, my editor, yeah. saying, "Hey, this this is pretty interesting. This is this is you know not terrible. So let's talk." <laughs> now, there's two points I want to bring up there. First of all, for Penguin Random House to take take a chance on this book, all credit to them because it is so unconventional. I think it's fantastic. It's very easy to play it safe, but this is uh, a, a masterpiece of voice. But the draft, uh, I believe, again from the credits, that was from Nano Rimo, the month of writing a novel in November. That really worked for you. It did. I've, I feel like I've become an unofficial spokesperson for, for <laughs> NaNoWriMo, but I'm a real advocate of the process and I was, I was speaking about it recently. The two things it does is it forces you to chase that word count. So you, you just have to sit down every day. So for, for your re- listeners, um, NaNoWriMo is you try and get 50,000 words down in 30 days. Right. And chasing that means you cannot procrastinate you just have to get your bum in a chair and just write and you also can't be too critical so you can't edit as you go because you're writing too fast which just takes that inner critic and that doubter out of out of the mix so you do you just pour it out and a lot of that work actually with with edits has made it into the book so you find with that uh incredibly fast first draft it's more your natural language just starts pouring out rather than trying to create it a certain way it's just out it comes that's 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 it it's very natural every november all right well it's something to remember now finally and this is a a bit of a curly question i like to ask all authors um, at the end of an interview 
What makes, in your view, for great writing? I love books that commit, that the author commits to the voice and the world and they don't necessarily spell everything out for you. Those are some of my favourite, favourite books is where you just get dropped headfirst in and you pick it up as you go and by the end you feel like you've contributed something back to the story and you've had to make a little bit of an effort to understand it but it's such a rich experience because of that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, when you say rich experience uh, emotionally in terms of story or...? You've utterly been transported. That transported. The, the dream book is one where you you just can't wait to get back to it. You just sucked right in, and you just cannot wait. Every waking moment is thinking when you're doing other things. How can I get back to that story? Oh, I think you've pretty much summed up my response to reading <laughs> Daniel Finlay's debut novel, a stunning novel called The Year of the Orphan, published by. Penguin Random House on the Bantam imprint out in stores now. And thank you for coming in all the way from Sydney today to 3CR Studios. Thank you very much, Daniel Finlay. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.